Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 32. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. I think you'll be happy you came because I have some good news for you this morning. I'm here to tell you that you are rich. Isn't that good news? And I'm not pulling some sort of pastor trick here saying, you know, you have spiritual riches in heaven because you're saved. I mean, you are actually materially rich. And seeing as how that's really what most of us want in one way or another, you should be happy you came to church today to find that out. Now, certainly many of you are thinking, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not the so-called 1%. I'm struggling just to make, just to kind of maintain a middle-class lifestyle. Fair enough. I don't think anybody here, you know, has like Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, you know, billions of dollars. But I would still say that you are, you are rich. In fact, many of us are, are wildly rich. And I want to take just a few minutes to prove that because I think it's important in letting the text speak to us this morning. So there's a, a website called globalrichlist.com. You can go on there and you can type in your household income and then it, it spits out where you rank in the world's population according to income. So for example, nice round number, let's say you make 100 grand a year, you're going to get this response. You are among the top 0.08% richest people in the world. You are the 5,067,405th richest person in the world. Uh, considering there's 7.3 billion people in the world, quick math tells you there are about 7.295 billion people poorer than you are, at least in relation income. But not all, of us, uh, not all of us make that much. So let's go to a level that many would really consider to be impoverished, $15,000 a year. 
If that's what you make, you're in this still in the top 8%. And if you're wondering what you need to make to be in that top 1% of income earners in the world, 32,400. So congratulations, you're rich. Not so fast, some might say. Life's a lot more expensive here than in the middle of India. It's all relative. I'm struggling just to make it here. Okay, let's look at it from another perspective. According to Randy Alcorn's book, Work, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, statistically, if you have sufficient food, decent clothes, this is my favorite one, you live in a house that keeps the weather out. Not four bedroom, three bath, tile, you live in a house that keeps the weather out, and you own a reasonably reliable means of trans transportation. If that's all you have, you're in the top 15% of the world's wealthy. If you have any money saved at all, you have some sort of a hobby. In other words, you have discretionary income. You have a variety of clothes in your closet. You don't have to wear the same thing every single day, and you live in your own home. You're in the top 5% of the world's wealthy. I didn't mention 50-inch 50, 50 TVs and iPhones and iPads and $3 coffees and internet connections and air conditioning and things that we don't consider lavish. That's just standard. By every statistical standard, we are the wealthiest society in history, and we happen to live in one of the wealthiest counties in the wealthiest society in history. So that means our text this morning of the rich young ruler, it's speaking to us. And we need to hear what Christ has to say to this man as Christ is going to show us that he is our true treasure. And in that, he's going to reveal what truly treasuring Christ means for us practically. So as we get into this, I want us to be kind of thinking about this, approaching this text from a couple perspectives. First, like I just said, I want Christ to speak directly to us. But secondly, I also want us to consider how this might apply to our witnessing, of course, because we are surrounded by people like this. So as we dig into this, the first truth we see in truly treasuring Christ is that truly treasuring Christ means we can't serve God and money. In verse 17, this man who came running up to Jesus, he's often referred to as I already have, as the rich young ruler. The reason being, we know he was rich because verse 22 says that. We know he was young because Matthew 19's recounting of this refers to him as a young man. And we know from Luke's recounting that he was a ruler, which means that he had a, a respected position within religious uh, Judaism, you know, maybe a, a respected position in his synagogue. But the point is, this, this guy, he's what's up. He, he's wealthy, he's young, he's respected, he's the guy who could retire at 35, he achieved true wealth at a young age, and he achieved social and religious standing. He, he was well respected in his cultural circles. In other words, he had everything you could want from a temporal, earthly perspective. And that's what makes this interaction so surprising. Because up to this point in Mark, the religious elite are hostile to Christ. They, they, they take him on. They, they want to kill him. But not this guy. This guy actually runs up to Jesus, which in this culture was a rather undignified thing to do. And, and then when he got there, he kneeled down before Jesus in utter humility. I mean, this seems like a truly impressive guy. And he seems like the ideal witnessing encounter. I mean, he, he's primed. He's ready. He wants to know, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
There's no need to convince him that there's a God, heaven, hell. He's there. He believes in God. He knows there's eternal life and death. He wants life. He's an upstanding guy who believes that he's serving God, but he seems to know that there's something missing. And so he's eagerly, humbly asking what that something is. How can I have life? Like I said, this is really an ideal witnessing encounter. You kind of put yourself in Jesus' shoes and ask yourself, you know, what would I do? Well, probably preach Jesus. Believe in Jesus. That's what you're missing. And that would be a good answer. And Jesus answered in similar ways in, in other texts, such as John 6. But that's not what he does here. Because he knows, despite outward appearances, there is a serious heart issue here. This guy had a God, but it's not the one true God of Scripture. It's the false God, the idol of money, of wealth. And Jesus is about to expose that in love by first homing in on the word good. Verse 18, Christ asks, why do you call me good? No one's good but God alone. You might say, well, why does he lead with that? Well, because this man is asking what can I do to earn eternal life? So Christ says, well, you have to be perfect, which is impossible because only God is perfect. By the way, only God is perfect and Jesus is perfect. So, But the point is to expose that he can't work his way to heaven to show that there's nothing he can do to save himself. In verse 19, Christ rattles off six of the Ten Commandments, which were a summation of the 613 laws extrapolated in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And so that's the answer. If you want to be saved on your own, you have to keep the law perfectly, which as we all know, no one can do for one straight week, let alone our entire lives. So this guy's response at that point should have been something like, okay, well, I haven't done that, so what's next? But he doesn't say that. Instead, verse 20, seemingly in all sincerity, he says he kept all those from his youth. Box checked. I'm good. I'm a perfect law keeper. What else do I need to do? And this is where it gets interesting. In response, Christ doesn't repeat the Sermon on the Mount, how if you hate your brother in your heart, you've committed murder. If you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. It's not just about the externals. It's about the internals. I think you've kind of missed that. He doesn't get frustrated because, you know, this guy's deluded. It's like, come on, man, nobody's kept the law. We all know that. Rather, verse 21, and this is so beautiful, it says, Jesus looked at him in love. He genuinely loved this man. He wasn't there just to win an argument. He was there to show how this man could truly be saved. The greatest way we can love people is to speak the truth, but to do it in a genuine love for their souls. So Christ says to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So it's really fascinating. He doesn't say, friend, you have not kept the law perfectly. You need to recognize that, repent and believe. He doesn't preach the gospel. Instead, he just goes straight to his heart and he shows him that until he gives up this false god of wealth, he can't be saved. That's what this is all about. Some have mistakenly taken this as a prescription for everyone. So historically, people have taken vows of poverty or more recently, you know, kind of lived radical lives, eschewing materialism. And although those things could be helpful in some ways for some people, that's really kind of missing the point. 
This isn't a universal thing that Christ repeated. So I'm not here telling everybody we all need to go sell everything we have. This was specific to this man and the idol that he had given his heart to. It just so happens it's an idol that many of us have given our hearts to as well, which is why we need to hear what Christ says here. And essentially what Christ is saying is what he said in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Truly treasuring Jesus means we can't serve God and money. So if that doesn't, I just said that doesn't mean taking about poverty. So if that's not what it means, what does this mean? Well, when Christ told this young man, go sell everything and give to the poor, come follow him, really what he was saying was he needed to no longer trust and treasure his money, but he needed to trust and treasure Christ, the true eternal life-giving treasure in place of all. <coughs> Excuse me. See, this guy was trying to walk a tightrope that many, many of us try and walk. We've been saved, we love Jesus, we serve Him, but then competing with our trust and service of Him is our money and or our pursuit of it. A huge part of many of our lives, it's about money, getting it, maintaining it, trusting in it to give us security, comfort, status. That's a relationship that many of us have with money. We say that we're trusting God, but in many ways, when it comes down to it, we're really trusting our money which is why it's an idol. It's a false god that we haven't let go of. So Christ gives it to us straight. If you want to truly be saved, you must treasure me and only me. That means you must reach out your hands and take my hands, but as you do that, that death grip you have on all that stuff, it's going to fall out. You're going to lose it. But in place of it, you get me. Will you do that? Will you make that trade? And for us, it's not that we necessarily, necessarily, like I said, need to literally give everything away, but we most certainly need to do that in our hearts. We need to be willing to let go of everything, knowing in the first place it came from Christ, and also knowing that He ultimately is our true treasure. He's where our true safety and comfort comes from. The infinite treasures of heaven and life are found completely and solely in Him, not in the stuff of this world. So will we give up the pursuit in our hearts of all the stuff of this world and give our hearts completely to Christ and inherit everything? Or will we keep our hold on, on money and wealth and all that that implies and not treasure Him and receive life and heavenly treasure? That's the choice. Christ doesn't give the third option of both and. Which again is where many of us are. That's why so many of us need to hear this. We can't serve God and money. The interesting thing about this is this man knew that. Verse 22 is the sad conclusion of this conversation. Notice, he doesn't argue with Jesus. He, he didn't argue back. Christ nailed him right in the center of the idol of money that he'd truly given his heart to, and he knew it. So he just walked away depressed, knowing he clung too tightly to his wealth and everything that entailed. He couldn't let go. He would not make that trade. By the way, keeping both perspectives in tension here, the, the perspective of Christ speaking to us and the perspective of this helping us proclaim Christ to others, this frankly is, is one of the difficult, heart-wrenching realities of proclaiming the gospel. Many times, 
it seems like most times we, we will love someone, we, we will speak the truth, we'll, we'll give them the gospel, we maybe we'll call out their idols in love, just desperately hoping to see them saved, only to watch them walk away. It's hard. It can be crushing, actually. I know that experience all too well personally. Many are unwilling to treasure Christ over their false God, which leads to our second truth. Truly treasuring Christ means replacing our idols with Him. And money is a particularly difficult idol to replace. Verse 23, Christ turns to His disciples who were with Him. They'd witnessed this encounter, and so He uses it as a teaching opportunity, saying how difficult it is for the wealthy to be saved, to enter the kingdom of God. And He uses this great word picture here to to make the point. There's a greater chance of, of a camel, the, the largest animal in the region at the time, squeezing through the tip of a needle than for a rich person to be saved. How's that for making a point memorably? Andrew Carnegie, the, the great 19th century steel baron, one of the wealthiest men ever, actually agreed. It was really interesting. When he was 33, he wrote a sort of a note to self, and this is what he said. Man must have an idol. The amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. No idol more debasing than the worship of money. Fascinating admission. Yet, not unlike the rich young ruler, knowing that, he still gave his heart to it. He ruthlessly pursued wealth for the next few decades of his life. As Christ says, as Andrew Carnegie said, as the rich young ruler found out, money is a particularly difficult idol to replace, even for those who know it's their idol. Although that that probably makes sense to us, this was absolutely shocking to Christ's disciples to hear this. In verse 24, they were amazed at what he was saying, which is why Christ repeated it. They had not misunderstood. I'll say it again. So in verse 26, completely astonished, they asked, if it's difficult for the wealthy to be saved, then who in the world can be saved? And that might seem like a little bit of a strange question to us, but let's remember the religious context of the day. At this time, the prevailing view was that the wealthy were the blessed of God. Wealth was proof of God's blessing, not unlike prosperity preachers of today. So to his disciples, if it was difficult for the wealthy to be saved, those closest to and most blessed by God, what hope did anyone else have? And verse 27, Jesus answers, correcting this backward theology by simply pointing to the sovereignty and grace of God in salvation. Like it says in Ephesians 2.8.9, For by, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. God does what no man can do. He saves us. Salvation is completely and totally the work of God by His grace. And in His grace, He exposes the idols, the false gods that we have clung to, and He shows Himself to be the true treasure in which eternal life and riches are found. Now, by the way, we're, we're focusing on money this morning because that's what the text is addressing. But money, of course, is far from the only idol that, that gets in the way of surrendering our lives to Christ. There are myriads of idols that we can give our lives to in place of Christ, but usually what's at the root of them is control. Usually that's what's at the root of them. 
We don't want to surrender our lives because we want to be in control. We, we would rather trust ourselves or, or something that we think provides us control rather than trusting Christ. Money just happens to be at the top of, of the list of idols that promises us that control, and that's why it's difficult to replace. That's what it promises to give us. If we have money, we think we can control our world. It gives us security, comfort, status. Like I said earlier, we trust in it. So realizing that and letting go of that is certainly a challenge for the unsaved, but it can be as equally difficult for the saved. Like I said earlier, <laughs> how many of us have this experience? Uh, I'm the first one to raise my hand. We can give our lives to Christ, love Him, serve Him, set down the idol of money, only to quickly pick it back up again. But Christ is reminding us we can't do that. We can't serve Him and money. Now, by that, I'm not saying... If you have truly repented and believed in Christ, and you're listening to this, and you're maybe you're doing kind of an honest assessment of your heart, and you're saying, okay, maybe I do trust in that a little bit too much, maybe that really is an idol in my life, that that means you're not saved. I'm, I'm not saying that. If I, if I were saying that, then none of us would be saved. We all struggle with idols, and many of us, it's even this specific idol of money. So I, I don't want you to doubt your salvation because of that. That said, we also don't want to excuse it away. If we're willing to excuse it away, well, that may be a sign that, that we're not saved because if we're Christ, Christ, we truly desire Him to speak to us and to hear His stark warning of love. So we need to root this out and any other idol. But like I said, truly treasuring Christ doesn't mean just rooting out our idols. It means replacing them with Christ as our treasure. And one of the ways we do that is by truly trusting Him. Now, we must trust Christ for our salvation. Like this interaction makes clear, salvation's all the work of the Lord. We trust Him, not ourselves, to be saved. We're completely in His hands. We, we get that, I hope. We understand that. Where we often have trouble, though, is practically. Because we don't just employ faith to get saved, but we are to live our lives by faith, trustingly depending on God in everything. Because guess what? He's in control, not you. This is the insidious deceitfulness of idols. We, even after we've been saved, we give ourselves to them thinking that we can use them to control our lives, but the reality is we're fooling ourselves. We're not really in control, and they can't provide the control they promised to. It's amazing how we, we build these structures, and by the way, it's not bad to do this. It's, it's wise to do this, but it's where we have our trust. But it's amazing how we, we build these structures of bank accounts and retirement accounts and, and insurance and houses and, and cars, and then... A natural disaster comes through and wipes it out, or a 2008 financial crisis comes through and wipes it out, or like a friend I have right now, we're planning on retiring in a year, and then we get cancer, and everything's been turned upside down, all of which reminds us we don't have nearly the control that we think we do. But even if that doesn't happen... None of those things happen. We keep our material structures intact, thinking, you know, I've managed this, I've controlled this whole thing. There's still death peeking around the corner. It's coming for all of us, inescapable. Can't take this with you. This doesn't do you any good in the next life. Then what? What we're giving ourselves is something that can't keep its promise. Our material wealth 
is temporal. It's not true wealth. It's not eternal riches. It's not ultimate. Sooner or later, either in this life or the next, it is going to disappear forever. It's a horrible God because it promises ultimate comfort and security, but it can't keep that promise. But you know who can? Christ. He's the only one who can. So we can't repeat the error of the rich young ruler. Think about this conversation that day. This man's true comfort, true riches, true life, true security, the one true God was standing right in front of him, offering himself and life in him. And after looking him dead in the eyes, he chose a temporal, empty, false God that he was going to quickly lose. And he walked away. We can't repeat that. If you're not saved, please recognize Christ is your only life, your only salvation, your only treasure. But if you are saved, let his word, just like the rich young ruler, hit you where it needs to. But unlike the rich young ruler, let let this root it out and replace anything you are trusting in or treasuring in place of Christ. He is your treasure. He is eternal life. He's the treasure of heaven. He's the only thing worth giving your life and heart to. Let go of the idol of wealth and replace it with him once and for all, not by taking a vow of poverty, but by truly giving all to him and trusting him in all things. To help us do that, we come to our third truth. Truly treasuring Christ means receiving much, the greatest being eternal life. Verse 28, Peter, listening to this, said in response that they'd left everything to follow him. Actually, Matthew 19, 27 says this was followed by a question from Peter. What then will we have? In other words, we've done this. We've forsaken everything for you. We've forsaken wealth for you. What do we get in return? And that might seem kind of crass, but Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter. In some ways, Peter, he's kind of following, and Christ is using wealth to say following him is an all-or-nothing proposition. Christ repeatedly said things like that. Matthew 10, 37, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Or Luke eleven twenty three: Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Or like we already covered, you can't serve God and money. These are stark statements that point to an essential truth. Christ is not an add-on to our lives. He's not someone that just helps us get what we want. He's not just another God in our lives or even the main God. And it's cool if we want to hold on to our other false gods as long as we keep him as the main God. No, Christ won't allow that. But it's not because he's some autocratic dictator that demands complete devotion or else. But he does demand complete devotion. To follow him means abandoning everything. And I'm not sure we truly get that in our culture. I think a lot of us think that we don't have to do that. We think that we can kind of hold on to our lives and and our dreams and our comforts and still have him. We can say we've given ourselves completely to him, but then we really haven't. And the test is, when we lose that job, or we get cancer, or we lose a child, or we never have that relationship, or we never get that career that we desperately wanted, do we blame God? Do we get angry with God? Do we kind of keep, keep God at a distance because we're not really sure if we can trust Him? Do we, like the rich young ruler, maybe even eventually just 
walk away? If so, then maybe we haven't really given everything to him. And again, I'm not necessarily talking about salvation here. When, when bad things happen, when difficult roads come, we can certainly have sinful responses and still be saved. The question is, do you stay there? Or do you truly trust Christ? That's the difference. As much as this particular time hurts, as much as you want that job or you don't want that cancer or whatever it is, ultimately, you trust Christ with your life knowing that he is good and that ultimately this difficulty only serves to cause you to trust him more. That, that's where we need to be, all of us. Christ is making this clear. It's all or nothing. Like you said to the rich young ruler, let go of everything and grab me. But again, the motivation isn't just because Jesus says so. The motivation is how he answers Peter. The motivation is by forsaking everything for Christ, we actually receive much in return. As he says in verse 29, anyone who has forsaken all for the gospel will receive a hundredfold of houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, land. In other words, we, we receive incredible gospel community. This is one of the true joys of being saved and becoming part of a, a healthy church community. You may lose family members when you reject, uh, or who reject you when, when you're saved, but you gain hundreds and hundreds of eternal family members, fellow believers in return. I, I often pray that when we, when we have uh, you know, fellow believers over for dinner. I just thank God for our friends, our, our eternal family members. That's what, what they are. And of course, it's not just local church believers, but it's believers worldwide. I've had many experiences, I'm sure you've had too, where I've been invited to a party or something where I didn't know a soul and I get into a conversation with someone and learn that they're a believer and then we just have this incredible time together, this sort of instant connection and, and truly deep, enjoyable conversation because he's my brother in Christ. That, that's an incredible joy. Oh, you made believers' homes. In the setting of the first century, that commonly would have been staying at believers' homes as they uh, traveled to other cities, but today I've seen people saved and invited over to have dinner at a fellow church member's house weekly. I've seen a church member maybe lose a job or a spouse and, and be invited to live with another family until they can get back up on their feet. I mean, the body of Christ is an unbelievable thing. In a world where we, we grow more and more isolated, there's just this beautiful community where the love of Christ is on display and it's called His church. As beautiful as that truth is, though, it's not Christ's complete answer. He also says in response to forsaking all for him, we will receive persecutions. That's where we say, hold on a sec here. I don't, I don't like that part of the list. How is this motivating me? How is this a good deal? Well, there are a few answers to that. God uses persecution for many good purposes, both in our lives and the world. But to stick with the subject at hand, this is really kind of a check on those who might be coming to Christ for the wrong reasons. Serving Christ in this world is no joke. You will receive much in return, but you also will be persecuted. That's a promise. It's promised in multiple places in Scripture, actually. Christ is not going to soft sell this. He's not hiding the fine print. He will not allow us to come to him for the wrong reasons, just to get stuff from him, or as long as everything in my life is working out fine, then I'm good. We will have persecutions in this life. It will be difficult. 
But that points us to the last thing in his list, and it's the key to the third truth that we're considering. The greatest thing we receive, as he says in verse 29, is eternal life. Remember, that was the young man's original question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, let's ask ourselves again, what is eternal life? Christ defined eternal life for us in John 17, 1 through 3, where he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all, all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So Christ says eternal life isn't only living forever in his presence, as awesome as that is. It's far deeper than that. Eternal life is knowing God in Christ. He created us to find our greatest joy, contentment, purpose, and fulfillment in him. He is the treasure in heaven. He is eternal life. He is our everything. He's our treasure. So it's not just that we receive much. It's that we receive everything in him. When we recognize that we are sinners worthy of death and we repent of our sin, we turn from our sin to God, we trust Him as our only Savior in the way to heaven, we receive eternal life. That means the reign of death in our lives is over. We are not going to experience eternal hell, but we receive eternal life, living in the presence of God forever in a perfect place as sinless people. But the true joy and depth of eternal life isn't just that eternal existence, it's knowing God in Christ. To know him means to know the truth of ourselves, to know the truth of this life, to know God. It means knowing the peace and satisfaction to the bottom of our souls that we were created to only receive in him. It means having all those desires we, we try and fulfill through money and everything else to be fulfilled in him. It's true unadulterated pleasure and joy. It's to know the greatest treasure. Christ gave the, the coolest parable about this in Matthew 13, 44, just one verse parable. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. That's what this is. You come across infinite riches in a lot for sale. What's the only sensible thing to do? Go and sell everything you can to buy that lot because in losing everything, you gain the infinite riches and all the joy that comes with it. That's Christ. And that's what's so tragic about the rich young ruler. If he would have just been willing to set free all of his stuff, he would have received everything. And if you're saved, you already have that in Christ. Get rid of your attachment to everything else and trust him as your true treasure. If you do that, I promise you won't be disappointed, especially when it comes to the next life, which leads to our fourth and final truth, and that is truly treasuring Christ means seeing this world for what it is. Seeing this world for what it is. Verse 31, Christ concludes by saying, but many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the bizarro world nature of the kingdom of God. You know, the bizarro world, the alternate world in the DC universe originally started with Superman where everything was upside down, the opposite of what it is in this life. One of my favorite versions of bizarro world actually has nothing to do with superheroes. It's, it's that Seinfeld episode. Some of you are probably too young for Seinfeld, but 
Elaine hangs out with Pizarro, Jerry, George, and Kramer, and they're these kind, considerate, thoughtful, curious about the world kind of guys, you know, the exact opposite of Jerry and his friends. I love that episode. But the reality is, it's not the kingdom of God, the next life, the new heaven and the new earth, that is the bizarre world. This is the bizarre world. We're living in it. It's just the only life we've known, so we don't see it. But Christ takes our blinders off and allows us to see it. This is the, this is the distorted world that turns all of God's prescriptions upside down. In this world, many times good is evil and evil is good. In this world, it's the rich, the powerful, the beautiful people that matter. It's the one who live for themselves that matter. Because of that, that's what many of us strive after too. But Christ sets us straight and says, don't be fooled. The world's values are a mess. They'll be gone along with the world before you know it. And then you'll be in eternity if you're saved in the kingdom of God. And that kingdom is a very different kingdom. The hierarchy of that kingdom is based on God's beautiful, perfect truth. And that means many who are prominent and powerful in this world are not going to be in that one. And many who are unknown, forgotten, trampled on, persecuted, like we talked about earlier, are going to be prominent there. Now, don't misunderstand this. This is not saying that the poor will be powerful there and the rich here will be poor there. It may be difficult for the wealthy to be saved, but that doesn't mean there's something inherently noble about being poor. Remember Christ's teaching here. It's not the money that's the issue. It's our making money an idol that is the issue, and the poor can do that every bit as much as the wealthy can. In God's kingdom, the last who will be first are those who forsook all and truly lived with Christ as their treasure. That's the point. It's not about trying to be first here. It's not even really about trying to be first there. It's about receiving the greatest treasure ever, eternal life in Christ. If you have him, you have everything both in this life and the next. We started this morning talking about how most of us are materially rich, but of infinitely more value, valuable if you're saved. You have infinite riches that are only found in Christ. So let's live to proclaim that truth to the world around us, and let's make sure we have that truth straight in our own hearts. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, We'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.